Take your Bibles, if you would, and go to John chapter 7 today. Today we're going to wrap up really what is the balance of John chapter 7. You'll see in just a minute we won't finish with the last verse of what you have in John chapter 7, but that's because the last verse of John chapter 7 really carries over into John chapter 8. So don't worry, I'm not going to preach an entire message next week on one verse that's about eight words long, okay, which I probably have been known to do. But today we're going to finish looking at uh, Jesus' interactions here um, with, the, with these who have come to hear him teach at the Feast of Tabernacles as he has continued to show that he is the Son of God. He is, uh, he is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who has come to save men from their sins, to give himself as a ransom for many. And that's what John drives at all throughout the gospel, continually, over and over again, seeing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and the ramifications it has on our lives uh, for those who, who believe in Jesus and those who don't. Uh, there are ramifications on both sides, and we'll see that today as we look at this passage in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52, and see this, that there are those now who are answering Jesus' invitation that he makes here at the beginning of this passage. If you follow along with me, we'll read the text today. On, this, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood, out, stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, and, 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 who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Lord, we ask you now to meet with us during this time as we open your word. We pray you would quiet our hearts and our minds. Undoubtedly, there are many thoughts that are going through our heads today as we have um, things and other, other business and uh, things that we may need to take care of later today. Lord, we pray that for these few moments we have together in your house, around your word, that you would help us to focus on your word and your word alone today. Lord, as we see the four different responses that these, these people he take here to the invitation of Jesus to come and to drink and to find spiritual life, would you challenge our hearts today? For one who hears this message today, who has never tasted of the water of life, but instead continues on in their sin, 
would you show them their need to be not just open to what you have to say, but to believe in you. And Lord, I pray for believers today that you would challenge our hearts to see the ongoing um, work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that Jesus promised us and convict us of our sin that we follow instead of living for you in the, in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for your truth to go forth today, your power to be evident here, your Holy Spirit to have freedom, and that you would be exalted in our lives. In your name we pray, amen. I don't know about you, but over the years of my life, I've received my fair number of invitations, whether by mail or email or in person. Now, some of these invitations that I receive, I never respond to. You know that Saudi prince who somehow got my email and wants to give me $2 million? It just seems too good to be true, you know? Some invitations I receive are for weddings or birthdays or other achievements in the lives of others. We have some in our congregation who will be graduating from high school this year, and we've received invitations for celebrations of those things. Other invitations that, that I receive are of great personal interest or personal investment, such as for conferences or seminars and growth opportunities, or one of my personal favorites is just invitations uh, to spend time with, with, with people individually working on a project or doing something together. We all like to be invited to something in our lives. And my daughter uh, just turned six this past week and uh, last weekend invited some of her friends from from our church here to come over and celebrate her birthday. And and let me tell you, I think all of them enjoyed that time. My mom was texting me saying, yeah, all those screaming girls running through your house. And they weren't quite running, but we had a good time because we all like to be invited to something. At the end of the day, though, an invitation is only as appealing as the event, the opportunity, or the need that that it addresses in our lives. And here in John chapter 7, as as we come to the end of the Feast of the Tabernacles, as as Jesus has been teaching in the temple since the middle of the feast, and and people have been listening to what he has to say as he's called out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, um, and he's addressed the the spiritual needs of those that are there, and, and called out how people really don't know what they think they know about him, and we see that the, that the religious leaders of Israel have dispatched these, these guards to go and, and apprehend Jesus. Now we come to the end of what Jesus has to say. And here in John chapter 7, in these verses we read, Jesus offers an invitation. It is an invitation that, doesn't have, that, didn't, that, that still today does not have an expiration date. It's an invitation open to all, even today. And it is an invitation of the utmost importance because his invitation is the only invitation that addresses the true need of man. And what Jesus invites you to promises to impact your life forever. And what we see in this passage today is Jesus invites all to come to him to find abundant, transforming, eternal life. You see, in Jesus... He offers life that is abundant, that is overflowing, that continues to provide. He offers life that is eternal, that never has an end, that brings us to heaven with God forever. And he offers life that is transforming, that takes us from what we are and makes us into what God wants us to be day by day by day as we walk with him. 
And we're going to see in this passage not only the invitation, um, we'll spend the first part of our message looking at that invitation today, but then we're going to spend the balance of the message in the last two points looking at four responses that, that we see to that invitation. Because there are some who are open to what Jesus has to say, some who are closed, some who are curious, and some who lash out at what Jesus says. Well, let's take the minute here and look at verses 37 through 39 and see the great invitation that Jesus makes. And what you see in verse 37 is there's a parallel between what Jesus says and the experience of those who are there for the feast in the history of Israel. It says on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So now we've arrived in this passage at the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. We read at the beginning of the chapter that Jesus arrived in secret at this feast and he began teaching in the temple, we read last or a couple times ago, in the middle of the feast. And those who heard Jesus were divided in their responses to Jesus. The religious leadership had dispatched officers now to arrest Jesus for the things that he was saying. All the while, Jesus has continued to teach. I told you last week, as we looked at those officers that were dispatched, that the tension of those officers would remain until the end of the chapter. So Jesus, that, that went on in the middle of the week. Jesus has continued to teach. And from what we understand here, those officers have, have continued to be on the outskirts or somewhere there in the vicinity of things that are going on, but they have not taken any action towards Jesus. And now on the last day, Jesus will once again give an invitation for those who are listening, that they are to come to him. He is the promised Messiah that Israel has longed for. Therefore, they need to respond to him. Now, this is not Jesus' first invitation for people to place personal faith and trust in him. He's done that many times over already, even in the book of John here. And here it is a great declaration of invitation. And we're not sure, if you go back and you research and look at the, 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 where this takes place in the historical context of Israel, we're not sure if Jesus gave this invitation on the seventh or what would be the eighth day of the feast. Um, seven days for the Feast of Tabernacles was, was prescribed in the law of God. But unsurprisingly, over the years, the people, specifically the religious leaders, had added an eighth day of the feast to be observed. Now, it's not crucial for us to, to understand the meaning of Jesus' words to know if it's on the seventh day or the eighth day. But just so you know, there, there, this could have been on the seventh day or this could have been on that last day that had been tacked on as part of the celebration of this feast. But Jesus, as he had been before, when challenging those who claimed to know his origin, it says that John tells us here that Jesus, in verse 37, that Jesus stood up and cried out. Jesus cried out last time at those who, who were challenging his origins. But he also stands up to make this invitation. And, and we have to understand that when Jesus both stands up and cries out, what he is saying takes on an incredible importance and significance because rabbis didn't stand when they taught. Typically now when you go somewhere and they teach a class or you come here, people stand up to teach. But rabbis would sit when they, when they were teaching those who were gathered around them. So when Jesus stood up and cried out, he, he sets the tone for what he is going to say and how important it is. And this is the invitation. Those who are thirsty should come to him 
to drink. And of course, this is a picture that Jesus is using of himself. And it's not the first time that Jesus has used this picture of himself as satiating drink. In John chapter 4, we read there and studied there about Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. And Jesus compared himself there and talked about how he is the living water. Here, Jesus is using this imagery because it parallels and fulfills an experience the Jews had during the Feast of Tabernacles. So, though it was not commanded in the Old Testament as part of the feast, there is a tradition that had developed as people observed the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And this this ritual is known as the water-drawing ritual. And it's something they did daily during the Feast of Tabernacles. And I want to help you understand, I want to help us all understand the context of what's going on here because it really heightens the picture and the parallel that Jesus is making here between himself and, 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 who, and, and, this, and what they're used to seeing every day here. So I want to read you a little bit of a longer quote here. This comes from uh, John MacArthur's commentary on John 1 through 11. He gives a very helpful description of the water-drawing ritual that helps us place this in context. This is, this is what it says. Each day... Of the feast, the high priest drew water from the pool of Siloam and carried it in a procession back to the temple. At the water gate on the south side of the inner court of the temple, three blasts were sounded on a shofar, which is a trumpet made out of ram's horn, to mark the joy of the occasion. Isaiah 12.3, which says, therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation, was also recited. At the temple, the priests marched around the altar while the temple choir sang the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 through Psalms 118. The water was then poured out as an offering to God. That's just a brief description to give you the context. This is what would happen every day of the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. This is something the people saw happen every day, this water-drawing ritual and, and what they were doing. And this ritual reminded them of the provision of God for his people when he gave them water from the rock in their journeys across the wilderness. It also anticipated the messianic age that was to come, as Zechariah in Zechariah 14.8 said, And in that day, it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter, it shall occur. It was also then a thanksgiving for rain from the previous year and a prayer for rain in the year to come. As one author said, as the ceremony developed, the Pharisees, who were primarily urban dwellers, insisted that a significant emphasis should be placed on the petition for rain because by this time of year, which is the fall, their cisterns would nearly be empty after the dryness of summer. And so you can begin to understand now some of the context behind this ritual that they were praising God for things he had done in the past. They were praising God, looking ahead to things he would do in the future, praising God for what he had just done for them in the, in the recent future with the harvest that had come in, and then asking God to continue to bless them with rain to refill their cisterns after the long, hot summer. And so capitalizing on this ritual that is, that is fresh in the minds of everyone who is there, Jesus calls for personal faith in himself when he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Like his discourse on the bread of life, Jesus is once again showing that he is the fulfillment of these things. 
The people observed this ritual, reminding them of God's provision of water to their ancestors. They encouraged their hearts to look forward to the Messiah's revival. And so Jesus, what he is doing here is saying, I am the Messiah. He's here. And so while this parallels what's going on immediately around them in this context of this ritual, there's also another parallel here. Because the Feast of Tabernacles was observed to remember the people's time in the wilderness as they, as they came out of Egypt into the Promised Land. And of course, because of their sin, that took 40 years. And all during this time, uh, God provided for his people. You know, as the people traveled from Egypt to Israel in the Promised Land, they spent much of their time in the desert. And I don't know if you know this, but in the desert, water's pretty important, right? Because if you don't have water, you're going to die. And so you have two million people in the the nation of Israel wandering through the wilderness in need of water, and God, time after time, miraculously provided water for them and met their needs. And so Jesus now calls for the people to trust in him to not meet this physical need of water that their ancestors had, but to meet the eternal need of their soul in the water of life. All are dying. And Jesus says that, 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 that those who are dying need to come to him to find life in him. What he says here, in essence, is if anyone thirsts, and we could insert, and we all do, let us come, or let, let him seek let, let them come to me and drink. Jesus is, is helping and, hope and, 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 and seeking to convict all hearts and souls to realize that, that we are all in need of life in him. He is calling for people to recognize that they are spiritually thirsty and therefore spiritually dying. And then he compels them to take action. Coming to Jesus, the only source of true living water. So in this invitation, you see, one, the people have to come. We have to come face to face and grip, to grips with this fact that we are spiritually thirsty. We spiritually cannot sustain our own life. Two, we must then come face to face that we need to come to Jesus, the only source of living water. He says, let him come to me. But then, there's a third component to this. Because it's not enough to just recognize who Jesus is or what Jesus did. Just as much as you can be as thirsty as you've ever been and come to the side of a well, but if you come to the side of that well and never take a drink of that water, you will never satiate your thirst. If you come to an understanding of who Jesus is but never drink of the water of eternal life, you will not have life. And Jesus says here, that they are to come to him and drink. We understand that salvation is offered to all, but there is no forced salvation. God's sovereignty does not override the free will of man. They work in concert with one another. Jesus' promise must be appropriated by personal faith in himself, and it is a glorious promise indeed. Because we see not only uh, the parallel that Jesus makes here, but then we also see the promise that he makes, continue on in verse 38. He who believes in me, 
as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus further develops here his offer with this promise in verse 38. As one pastor put it, God did not intend for believers to be ponds in which the living water of salvation stagnates. And Jesus declares this in verse 38. Now, Jesus says here in verse 38, um, what, what Jesus says here, there are some scriptures that Jesus had in mind, we believe, from these things. Um, as he says there, as the scripture has said. We're not sure of the identification of those Old Testament passages, but perhaps it was Zechariah chapter 14 or other passages like it. But what Jesus promises here is that there will be visible results of the gospel's work in the lives of those who place their faith and trust in him. That's what he talks about here. Those who believe in Christ will find within them, he says, a river flowing with the water of life. Now, just just think about that for a second. Think about it from a physical standpoint. In a physical environment, there is a big difference between a cup of water or a cistern of water and a river, right? Because the cup is only as good until the water is Or the cistern, even though it may be a very large cistern in the ground, it is only good until the water is gone. But a healthy, well-fed river is an unending, renewing source of water. And what Jesus says here is that the river of eternal life that he offers is immune to droughts. And from the spiritual side, we see also the difference between what Jesus would offer and what the law prescribed. What did the law say that people needed to do in order to be right with God? They needed to come and offer sacrifices. And the need to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings to atone for sin and to obey God continuously returned time and time and time again. I mean, you read the law of God and you think, wow, that's a lot of things, right? There's a lot of things you have to do over and over again. But with Jesus, it would not be so. He would give his life once for all. And he would give eternal sealing and empowerment to his disciples. What Jesus is talking about here when he says, out of his heart will flow the rivers of living water. Jesus is speaking here of the third member of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. Now John, in verse 39, makes this clarifying statement about the Holy Spirit. The time that Jesus gave this invitation to himself, the Holy Spirit had not been sent for the purpose of indwelling believers. Now, this doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit didn't exist. Indeed, as a member of the Trinity with God the Father and God the Son, the Holy, God the Holy Spirit is indeed God and has existed from eternity past and has always acted in accordance with God's plan. We know that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord rested on saints for certain times or for certain actions. But there would be no permanent indwelling of the Spirit until the work of Jesus was finished. And John talks about that Jesus had not yet been glorified. In Acts chapter 1, we read of Jesus' glorification when he ascended back into heaven. Then, just a couple chapters later, on the day of Pentecost, 
the Holy Spirit was sent to indwell the disciples. And throughout the book of Acts, as you read that, you see the progression of God's plan as the church is established and the Holy Spirit indwells believers. And by the time you close the book of Acts, that whole transitional period from the work of Jesus to the establishment of the church is finished. And so from the the close of of that time until today, the Holy Spirit indwells believers at salvation. From the moment that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit resides in you. And such is the case in our lives today. Because the Holy Spirit then enables us to live lives that are pleasing to God. And through His strength, you can live out that new life that you are called to live in Him, and that impact spills out of your life. You see, if you are a child of God, then you are a channel of God's work because of the Holy Spirit. You can edify other believers, you can evangelize the lost, you can see victory over sin in your life because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is an incredible work of God. You know what this is? This is the gospel. Not that, that Jesus Christ saved, just saved to save sinners, which he did, and that's an important part, okay? That's what we talk about. But he saves us and redeemed us from our sin that we may live to his glory. That's the work of the gospel in our lives. It continues to go on. Believing in Jesus does not leave one unaffected. It results in new actions because of the Holy Spirit's work. And many a Christian has tried to divorce new actions from salvation, claiming, well, because of God's grace and eternal security, I can live how I want. But this is a completely foreign concept to what Jesus and all others in the New Testament teach. We are not saved to live however we want. We are now given the power to battle our flesh in the new life in Jesus Christ. That's an incredible reality and an incredible invitation that Jesus makes here. That's exactly what he's saying. And Jesus calls for those around him that day to believe in him, that they may experience this for themselves. And so now, as we see, as Jesus finishes his teaching and his invitation, we see now there are two groups who hear the words that Jesus says. And between those two groups, there are four different responses. These responses are diverse, as they often are, and they are responses that we see even in our lives today. Number one, or number two in our our passage, we see the crowd's response, and there are two responses there. Number one, in verses 40 and the first part of verse 41, there are those in the crowd who are open to what Jesus says. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. So within that crowd that day, there were some who heard the invitation of Jesus and who were intrigued, if not ready to believe. We see in this open response two different titles that are given to to Jesus. Some of them affirm Jesus as the prophet. Now, we looked at this in John chapter 6 when Jesus was talking about the bread of life, um, or when Jesus fed the the 5,000, when people talked about, is this the prophet? I mean, that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18 where it talks about the prophet like Moses that was promised. Now, some people in Israel identified Jesus or identified the prophet as the Messiah, which is the correct identification, by the way. The prophet like Moses is the Messiah. Others 
identified the prophet as the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, we're not told what the conclusion is of every person here when they say, is, truly, this is um, the prophet. Some of them probably believe that, he, that the prophet was the Messiah. Others of them probably believe the prophet was the forerunner of the Messiah. We're not told what every person believed. However, we are told that there are some um, who take this conclusion even further. There are those who see Jesus as the Christ, which means the Messiah. Now, earlier in John chapter 7, at the very beginning of John chapter 7, when Jesus had not yet arrived at the feast, we see there are those in the crowd who are debating the merits of Jesus. Do you remember that passage? And it said there that they didn't want to speak too too loudly about these things because they didn't know uh, where the, the, the leadership of Israel had come down on these things, and they feared the religious leadership's wrath should they offend them. But you see, now that earlier caution is gone. They're openly debating these things now. They are out and out making their stance known. They are not afraid to make their beliefs known to those around them that he is the prophet or he is the Messiah. And we do not know that if every single one of them understood that Jesus, who Jesus was and what he would do as the Messiah, perhaps there are still those who, like those in John 6, long to make him king and overthrow the Romans. But they did believe Jesus' words and testimony of himself. So it is not out of the question to say there are at least some of them who are become part of the believers in Israel, the remnant of those who would believe in Jesus during his time. And though that group was small, they were a very important group because they would receive all that Jesus promised. And their, their fearless testimony here is a very convicting Please understand, there is nothing to be afraid of or ashamed of in placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Do not fear what your family will think. Do not worry about what your friends will say. I mean, there are even those who, who in the past have made a false profession in Jesus Christ, only to realize they have never come face to face with this game of the gospel that they have played, but even that is not anything to be ashamed of and to hold you back from the truth that you need Jesus Christ. The security of your soul is far greater than any temporal repercussion that you can imagine. But while those, there are those in the crowd who are open to what Jesus has to say, we see in the balance of this section on the crowd that there are those who are closed to the invitation of Jesus in the second part of verse 41 into verse 44. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Once again here, I want to point out to you that the ignorance of hard-hearted people blinds them to the truth. Because there are dissenters to Jesus' message here, and once again, They are dissenters, why? On the basis of what they thought they knew about Jesus. The question in verse 41, the second part there where it says, will the Christ come out of Galilee, that expects a negative response. And let's take a minute and talk about what they're referring to. The prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament are very clear. From what city will the Messiah come? Bethlehem. 
the city of David. What is the promise that God made to David? That from his line would come the Messiah. He would be a descendant of David. Therefore, in the minds of these people, Jesus was not the Messiah because he was not from Bethlehem. He was from Nazareth, from the backwoods of the area of Galilee. Yet, if they had stopped and examined the situation, they would have understood much different, right? Because the truth is, where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. Who was he born to? Mary. Do you know who her line traces to? To David. Joseph was the earthly father of Jesus, and he is descended from David. Jesus' human lineage was traced precisely to where God said it would be. We read in the account in Luke chapter 2 that Mary and Joseph went to be registered in Bethlehem because it says he was of the house and lineage of... It's an established fact. But these people, looking at who Jesus is and, and, and convicted by what Jesus says, have, in the ignorance of their heart, shut out the truth and dismiss it on these ignorant claims. These ones have no interest in investigating a situation fully. And honestly, this is often the case for those who reject Jesus. Some reason will be given, some excuse, but it really is an excuse or reason that is predicated on continual rejection. But the truth is that the truth of the gospel cannot be ignored. And when investigated, you will find it is not only compelling, it is true. Thus, the people in Jerusalem are divided. And we see here in, 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 at the end of these verses that some of them have become hostile again. They attempt to seize, to take Jesus by force, and again are rebuffed. The message of Jesus is a divisive message. It was in his day, and it is today. I mean, Jesus himself said, that the message of himself would pit friend against friend and family members against each other and more. Why? Not because it's aggressive or it encourages us to divide, but because it assaults the basic ideals that we hold as human beings. That we can save ourselves or that we can make God fit our programs and our plans for our lives. But the truth of who Jesus is can only be accepted in humility of heart. The crowd is divided on Jesus, but they're not the only ones. We see also the shakeup of Jesus' words not only draw the crowd to response, but they draw the leadership of Israel to a response. So in the crowd, you have those who are open and you have those who are closed. Now, in the leadership of Israel, you have first those who are amazed by what they have heard in verses 45 and 46. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. So the tension of the dispatched officers by the religious leadership now is resolved here in these verses. Several days have gone by and the officers returned and they haven't completed the mission. What was the mission? To go out and arrest Jesus. And they failed that. And what we see here is the, the priests and the Pharisees who had commissioned that, them on this call for an accountability by these men. They wish to know why these men have not carried out their duty. 
And we learn that these men have been impressed and amazed by what Jesus says. Now, understand who these men are. These men are descendants of the tribe of Levi. They're Levites, which means they have been set aside by God to serve in the, in the worship of God. That's why they're even in the position they're in, because they're serving the temple. Which means that these are religiously trained men. They have heard the things of God. They've studied the word of God. They've heard the teachings of the rabbis. They're not ignorant of these things. And when they heard Jesus speak, they heard something they'd never heard before. Because they heard the living word of God. He did not speak as others had spoken. He did not teach like the rabbis they had grown up under. He didn't even sound like these religious leaders whom they now served. And so, instead of arresting him, they were instead arrested by the words that he spoke. They didn't even know what to do with Jesus. And so, they just didn't do anything. They just turned around and went back. And here we see what I think is an incredible boldness and work in their hearts. They did not take their own pre-programmed agendas and override the work of God in their hearts. Because they could have done that, right? This is what we're supposed to do. This is what the religious leader said. We're supposed to arrest this guy and take him. But they didn't take this pre-programmed agenda by those who were antagonistic towards Jesus and, and, and excuse what Jesus was saying. Instead, they were amazed by what he said. They had hearts that were open and at least somewhat receptive to listen to his words. We're not told the choices that these men would ultimately make, but their amazement did begin to open their hearts. Meanwhile, those who are over them were extremely antagonistic and extremely demeaning. And so while we have those who are amazed, we have lastly today those who are contemptuous in their response to Jesus. Look at the balance of our text today. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law, that does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. So, unsurprisingly, the Pharisees are incensed by what they hear. I mean, here they are. They've sent this, these guys. Their job is to do what they're told to do, in essence. And they haven't done it. And so what they do here is not just come down on these men for their lack of obedience. No, instead, they are charging these men with a lack of spiritual discernment. Their question accuses these men when he says, when they say, are you also deceived? They are accusing these men of abandoning the truth of God's word and instead being deceived by what they imply is a false teacher. This is, simp- this is worse than simply failing their duty. This is abandoning God's leadership in their lives. Then they reveal their pride and their arrogance by asking this next question, which expects a negative answer. He says, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? And again, the way that's phrased in the Greek, it anticipates a negative answer. In that, It's a rhetorical question. None of the religious leaders 
have believed in Jesus, they insinuate. Therefore, if these men are listening to what he is saying, they are no better, keep going, than the uneducated masses. It says, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And what you see here is the pious, elitist attitude of the Pharisees that comes through in this statement. They look at the crowd of those people that are gathered there in Jerusalem as the word they use there is accursed for not knowing and observing God's law and those things that were added onto it by the rabbis. In the minds of the Pharisees, the masses were ignorant while they, the Pharisees, were favored by God for their religious actions. And it's really quite fascinating that the Pharisees were as popular as they were with the, with the masses of people because when you read this, they didn't like people, right? They looked down their nose at these people. You really get a picture of who they are. They don't care about them. They don't care about God's people, and so they led those people into sin and false worship practices. They misused God's word as a club to beat people down and as a pedestal on which they were going to stand above other people. And ironically, it will be God's word that condemns these men. And furthermore, the irony continues because they ask this question. Have any of the rulers of the, or the Pharisees believed in him? And what we see here is the answer is implied to be no. But you read in verse 50 that there is one in their midst who calls some things in question. And his name is Nicodemus. Now, we read about Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And, John, and in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and was confronted by Jesus. On who, as, Jesus as, John, as Nicodemus asked Jesus who he was, he was confronted by Jesus on Nicodemus' own lack of knowledge of the Scriptures and about who Jesus is. And in John chapter 3, Nicodemus did not go away as a believer in Jesus. And still at this point in John chapter 7, Nicodemus most likely is not a believer in Jesus. But what you see is it is obvious that Nicodemus has continued to think about what Jesus says. And I believe continued to study the scriptures as Jesus challenged him on in John chapter 3. And so therefore, he calls out the religious leadership on a point of, of their law here. He says that they should not be rushing to a conclusion of judgment, basically here, without a fair trial. They had sent for Jesus to be arrested, but they had no charges on which to base this action. And not even the Romans, who were despised by the Jews, would do such a thing. We read about that in the book of Acts. Nicodemus has yet to profess his faith in Jesus, but he does not shy away from what is right. And whether they believe in Jesus or not, the religious leaders must see the point, the truth in the points that Jesus is making. And that's undeniable. Jesus is speaking the truth as God, all he only does, all he only speaks is the truth. And the truth is irrefutable. And so you see, time and again, the Pharisees, they do not have anything they can say against what Jesus is saying because you can't refute it. And so therefore, they attack the people who repeat the message. They did that with the 
the, the officers who came back, they demeaned them, they accused them of listening to a false teacher, and they're going to do the same thing to Nicodemus. Notice what they say, how they respond to Nicodemus. They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? So what they're doing here is turning their ire on Nicodemus through personal attacks. They're continuing to seek to intimidate and belittle all those who oppose them. And honestly, this is a common defense tactic, right? If you can't refute the truth, you go after the person. Those who do not wish to face the truth of themselves lash out at those they perceive to be the issue. Why do you think we live in a society that loves the word phobic? Because anytime you speak the truth, you get labeled with that, with that whatever it is, phobic. Folks, we're not afraid. We're standing for the truth. So continue to stand on the truth of the word of God. They ask the religious leadership. They mock him by asking him, by asking Nicodemus. The religious leaders ask Nicodemus, are you from Galilee? Because in their minds, who is from Galilee? Jesus. That's a very demeaning insult, by the way. It's a petulant, personal attack on who Nicodemus is. Because in their minds, if you are from that area, you have no right to be with them, basically. Then they assert, notice what they say, search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of, out of Galilee. They assert that no matter where you look in the scriptures, you will see no prophet comes from such a backwoods, backwater place as Galilee. But folks, the irony here is too great. Because there is a prophet who has come from the area of Galilee. You may have heard of him before. His name is Jonah. You ever heard of that guy? Seems convenient, right? That they claim to know the scriptures, yet they don't even know where this guy who God used in such a great way is from. Some scholars also believe that it was quite possible that Nahum, Hosea, and a guy named Elijah were from this area as well. These experts on God's word and God's law are woefully incomplete in their knowledge and understanding of that word of God. And what they're doing is they're implying Nicodemus is an ignorant fool, when in reality they were the ones who were foolishly ignorant. Their hatred of Jesus clouded everything else. It blinded them to the most basic truths, and it would lead them down a very dark path later on. If you resist the truth of the gospel and embrace sin, you will say and do a lot of foolish things. That's true whether you believe in Jesus or you don't, by the way. If you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you have instead decided to serve your sin instead of the Savior, you're going to say and do a lot of foolish things in your life. You will serve your pride and sin, and that always ends badly. Instead, let us look to Jesus. Let us look to him One for salvation, because the hope of eternal life and the source of water that you need for your soul is found in him. And furthermore, let us look to him for sanctification, that we may live a life pleasing unto him. Jesus invites all to come to him to find abundant, transforming, eternal life. The message of Jesus is an invitation to himself for eternal security and eternal satisfaction. 
It isn't a call. Understand, the invitation of Jesus isn't a call for you to do better or you to try harder. It isn't an encouragement to add him to your personal efforts. Instead, it is a confrontation of your self-righteousness, and it calls for you humility and your entire trust in him alone. The promise of Jesus is the greatest promise that anyone will ever offer you. Spiritual life and eternity with God. No one else is going to give you this. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, my friend, today is the day to do so. And if you thought you trusted in Jesus, but the more you have come face to face with who Jesus is and what the gospel is, and you've come to realize you've never truly done that, I encourage you to do that today. And if you have trusted in him, the question you have to ask is, what are the results that you see in your life? Because the Holy Spirit's work in your life and in your heart should be undeniably visible. Not that you're going to be perfect, but that you should be godlier today than you were yesterday, than you were last week, last month, and beyond. A closer walk with God and true communion with him does not leave us unaffected. And what it does is it spills out to those who are around us. Jesus extends his invitation to you to trust him with your eternity and to live for him in the strength of the Holy Spirit. So very simply, will you respond to him today and submit your life to him? Because that is the only way to enjoy peace with God and full, complete fellowship with him. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. We thank you for the invitation of Jesus to come and drink of the water of life that he is and find in him a river of life that flows in us in the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you today would have the freedom again to do your work in our hearts. There may be one who hears these things today who has struggled with eternity or has, has come face to face and come to grips with the fact that they have never truly trusted in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage and the boldness, the burden to make that right today. To find eternal hope in you alone. For Christians who are gathered here today, of which, Lord, there are probably many, we know there are many here in this room, if not most of us, would you do your work in our hearts? Would you help us to see, Lord, that the gospel doesn't end the moment we confess you as Savior, it is only beginning in our hearts and lives. Would you show us our sin? Lord, undoubtedly, in a room like this, there are many, many personal battles with sin that are represented here. Some Christians who have been locked in a battle and lost many times and they care to admit, would you help them to find help today? Lord, if they need another person to put their arm around them, Lord, give them the courage to find someone to help them in their spiritual walk today. So other Christians who have been ignorant of sin in their lives, but you today have laid your finger on their hearts and shown them things that are wrong. Lord, would you give them the grace to commit 
to doing what is right in your strength. We ask now, as we close our service today, that we would honor you and glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen.